You can turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be studying verse 1 to 18 this morning. Hebrews 10 verse 1 to 18, and the theme for this morning's message, Jesus is enough. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we draw near to the throne of grace and come to your word, we wish to do so with humble hearts, Lord, knowing that it is a great sin in everyone's life, in every person's life, is the sin of pride. And so we bow before you, humbling ourselves before the throne of the Most High, bowing at the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and asking that you would open our hearts as someone does a locked door with a key, that you would enter our hearts and a fellowship with us and we with you. For Jesus' sake, Amen. I remember uh, speaking to a man once, a man who believed that we should return to the Old Testament ceremonial law, meaning that uh, we should return to Old Testament circumcision, uh, the seventh-day Sabbath, to the Old Testament dietary laws, uh, the Old Testament feasts, and so on. And at a stage after talking for probably more than an hour and a half, I asked, I posed this question and I said, Is it enough for salvation to believe in Jesus Christ alone? And he paused for a moment, thought for a bit, and then he said, No, it's not enough to believe in Christ. Well, the New Testament teaches differently. Books like, especially books like Galatians and the book of Hebrews. First of all, we see when speaking of Jesus and in keeping with this theme, Jesus is enough, Jesus is a better sacrifice, verse 1 to 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, still Christ speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, 
we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So let's look at the animal sacrifices then uh, in the first four verses and then at Jesus' sacrifice. So let's say uh, an architect, let's take an architect as an example. So the architect, he draws up the plans, but it, it's really only the out, outlines of the building. And then someone else takes the plans and he builds according to those plans. The Old Testament sacrifices and priests and tabernacle, that was only the outline. That was the architect's drawing. Jesus is the building. The Old Testament, we can say, is the shadow. Jesus is the body. Verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, all these Old Testament feasts and Sabbaths and dietary laws, they were shadows. Christ is the body, and we find it elsewhere in Hebrews as well. So why on earth, why in the world would these Hebrews, these first readers, why do they want to swap the Old Testament sacrifices for Jesus? Saying, no, no, we don't want Jesus anymore, give us the sacrifices again. That, that's like saying, no, I don't want the, the building anymore, I want to return just and have the plans, the architect's drawings, the outline. No, I don't want the body, I don't want the body, give me the shadow. It's utter madness. You can understand that Old Testament believers would bring sacrifices, because they were still waiting for the Messiah. But if the Messiah has come, and you return to the sacrifices, and you say, oh, I want the sacrifices, I don't want the Messiah. Well then, obviously you, somehow or other, you're going to reject the Messiah. You have to reject the Messiah if you want to return to the sacrifices. And then if you reject the Messiah, your sins can't be forgiven. And how, how can your sins be forgiven if you've rejected the final sacrifice, and the only sacrifice that can remove sin? In the Old Testament sacrifices, they, they can't remove sins. Just the, the bare fact that every priest, the Old Testament priest, every single year, they brought the same sacrifices. They repeated these sacrifices. That shows you it can't remove sin. Verse 1, middle of the verse. It can never, meaning these sacrifices, can, it can never, the Old Testament, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, make perfect those who draw near. And we, we've already seen that in Hebrews. If the, if the Old Testament sacrifices could remove sin, well, then you could have simply brought a single sacrifice. Wouldn't have been necessary to bring continual sacrifices. Verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But the fact that these sacrifices are continually offered... That was to remind the people, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Animal sacrifices cannot remove sins. Animal sacrifices cannot remove sins. Animal sacrifices cannot remove sins. That's what we saw in verse 1 and 2. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus alone, Jesus and only Jesus can remove sin and cleanse your conscience. Chapter 9, verse 14, speaks of 
Christ purifying our conscience. Chapter 9, verse 26 at the end, speaking of Jesus putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So you don't need to do penance. You don't need to go to a confessional booth and confess your sins to a priest. You don't need to make some sacrifices for the Lord and say, I've made these sacrifices and now he can forgive my sin and will forgive my sin. So when you've sinned, what you simply need to do is confess your sin. Remember the cross of Jesus. Believe in the cross of Jesus. Believe in the crucified Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in Christ and be forgiven. That's simple Christianity. That is Christianity 101. That's great R Christianity. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus inaugurated the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. Communion. He didn't, he didn't inaugurate the Lord's table to remind you of your sins. Like the Old Testament sacrifices. You brought an Old Testament sacrifice and the sacrifice, verse 3 says, reminded you of your sins every single year when that sacrifice is brought on the Day of Atonement. You remember, I am a sinner, I am a sinner. That's not why Jesus inaugurated the Lord's table. He did so rather to remind you of the forgiveness of your sins through the cross, through his sacrifice. And it's, it's actually, it's tragic in a way that most Christians know this. They know this, but then this is what you'll see. They'll refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. They'll stay away from the Lord's table when they've sinned. So, in other words, they're starting now to treat the Lord's table like they would treat Old Testament sacrifices. Taking, seeing the sacrifice, oh yes, it's reminding me of my sin. Instead of blessing God and praising God and thanking God for the sacrifice of the cross, the sacrifice Jesus brought to remind us your sins are forgiven. So, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you. Don't stay away from the Lord's table, Christian. Don't stay away from the Lord's table when you've sinned. Rather see it as an opportunity to make things right, to come to God, to repent of your sin, to confess your sin and to be forgiven. So that's number one then, um, just the first half. The second half of, uh, half of, of number one, point number one, We've looked now at the animal sacrifices. We're continuing to look at Jesus' sacrifice in verse 5 to 10. I once spoke to an atheist, and this atheist very firmly said, I don't need sacrifices for my sins to be forgiven. I don't need a sacrifice. And the only reason he said so is because clearly he did not understand the meaning of sacrifice and the meaning of sacrifice in the Bible. So, of course, the animal sacrifices couldn't remove sins. We saw that in verse 1 to 4. And that is why verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, God sent his Son into this world. And we read that over and over in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. For this purpose I came into the world, and so on. So, so like the Father, the Son is truly God. Jesus is truly God. Chapter 1, verse 3. So he comes into this world, meaning he is not from this world. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews is the exact imprint of God's nature. is the express image of God's nature. He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory. 
John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Jews obviously understood if you say you're the Son of God, you thereby mean you are God. That's why they said he's a blasphemer. You're making yourself equal to God by calling God your Father. You're calling yourself the Son of God. You are saying you are God. You being a mere man, make yourself God. John 5, 18, 10, 10 verse 33 and 36. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Thomas worshipped him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for it. He blessed him for it. And that's very important. That the one who dies for our sins, the sacrifice, the one who dies in our place, has to be God. He has to. Because God alone can remove sin. God alone can save sinners. God alone can pay an, an infinite price by dying on the cross. That's the, one of the points of Psalm 49. That no man can ransom another or pay the price for his soul. And then later on it says, but God will ransom my soul. So if Jesus were merely a man, he couldn't pay the price. But then, then on the other hand, God cannot die. God is immortal. He's the undying God. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 verse 16. So, so that would mean that the Son couldn't only be God. He had to become man. He had to become man. And that is why verse 5 says, when he came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus was born of a woman. The Word became flesh. The Word became man. Christ became man. And He didn't become so in the same way we are human beings, by a mother and a father coming together and a child being born. No, the Bible says He was born of a virgin. God, it says, you have prepared a body for me. God had to prepare a body. God had to prepare ears for him to listen. And a body for him so that he could be sacrificed. So he's born of a virgin. God creates him in the womb of this virgin. And Jesus then, born of a woman, very important, born of a woman, so that no one could say, he's not a man. No, he is a man. He's born of a woman like you were born of a woman. But then he's born of a virgin, so that no one would say, oh, he's just a man. No, he's not just a man. He is God and man, man and God. So through the virgin birth, God also makes certain, by bringing him into the world in this way, God makes certain that he does not inherit Adam's sin. He does not have a sinful nature like you and I have. We were born with a sinful nature, even at the moment of conception. You and I were sinners, Psalm 51 verse 5. So Jesus is born sinless, without a sinful nature, Hebrews seven twenty six, Luke 1 verse 35. He's called the Holy One. He's, he's untainted by sin. So, if Jesus had a sinful nature, that would mean that he deserved to be punished for his own sin. So he needed to be born without sin so that he could bear the punishment for our sin. But of course, it wouldn't be enough to just say, oh, he hasn't got a sinful nature, therefore he can die for our sin. That wouldn't be enough because Adam also did not have a sinful nature when God created him, and yet he chose to sin. 
So Jesus did not only need a sinful nature, Jesus had to live a perfect life. He needed to choose to not sin. He needed to choose to be obedient, to live a perfect life before he could be the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus knew the Father desires and delights in obedience above sacrifice. He first wants an obedient life before you bring sacrifice. Verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You want obedience, Father. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's what you want. Obedience to your will, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. And that you find over and over in the Old Testament. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God wants obedience. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It's not sacrifices that God desires. Saul, Samuel's told King Saul, God delights in obedience. Not your sacrifices, Saul. And then Proverbs, there's a couple of verses that say the same. So that is why Jesus came. He came to do the Father's will perfectly, verse 7. Jesus even said that, not my will but yours be done. My will is to do, my, my bread is to do, my food is to do the will of my Father. And then Jesus did that indeed. He did everything that the Lord demanded, commanded, and forbade. He, he shunned disobedience. He pursued obedience. He fulfilled the prophecies. Verse 7, second part, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book, Jesus did everything written of him in the Old Testament. And he did everything the scroll of the book, the law, demanded. If Jesus had sinned, well, then the Father would have, would, have, would have rejected his sacrifice. And then Jesus would have remained in the grave for his own sin as a punishment for his sin. And you and I wouldn't have been forgiven. No forgiveness. No perfect record accredited to us. No heaven after this life. No new body when Christ returns at the second coming. And that would have meant death is the end for us. Death would have spelled the end. Really. Conception would have spelled the end. You, wouldn't, you would have been killed the moment you were born. Even before in the womb. So can you see? It's not only the life of Jesus that is important. It's the, or, or not only the, the death of Jesus, but the life. His life is as important as his death. Jesus' life is not merely a pattern you and I should follow. Of course it's a pattern, 1 John 2 verse 6. But it's not merely a pattern we should follow. Jesus' life is the merit you need to stand before a holy God. So through his life, Jesus kept the law in our place. And through his death, he bore the punishment for our law breaking. Verse 8 and 9. When he said above, you had neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So, in other words, the offerings Jesus brought, verse 8, but also the obedience he rendered, verse 9. And so Jesus takes our sin upon him, and he gives out his perfect obedience to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So in that way, Jesus also fulfilled the first covenant, and he created a second covenant. Verse 9, second part. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And that we saw in chapter 8. And I'm going to say a little more about this just later on. But for now, it's, it's enough for us to know at this moment that the old covenant with its temple and priests and sacrifices, it no longer exists and never again will it exist. Verse 9. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. Chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it, it absolutely it does not make sense to me that some people still want to live under the old covenant. They still want to have the Old Testament feasts and the Old Testament dietary laws and Old Testament, the Seventh-day Sabbath and the Old Testament circumcision. Why do they want to return to that? And it does not make sense to me that anyone would expect a rebuilt stone temple in Jerusalem in the future and sacrifices reinstituted in the future. That's the way they interpret the final chapters of Ezekiel. Why in the world would you even think that way if Hebrews clearly teaches the old covenant is done? There's a new one inaugurated forever. To tell you the truth, the old covenant cannot be reinstituted because the new covenant has forever replaced the old. Unless, of course, you want to return to the architect's drawing and throw away the building. You want to return to the outline. You want to return to the shadow and choose Jesus' shadow above him. And that would be utterly foolish. Because Jesus, through, through Jesus' whole life, through his life, and through the single sacrifice of his body on the cross, he accomplished the Father's will. He did his Father's will. And by this, he set us apart to belong to himself, to be his property. That's what the word holy or sanctify means, verse 10. And by that will, in other words, by doing the Father's will, by Jesus doing it, through his life and death, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart to belong to God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you no longer belong to Satan or to the world or to sin or to yourself. And so you do not have a choice. You have no choice but to do what Jesus commands you. You belong to him. Now if that makes you feel rebellious and you feel this rebellion rising in your heart when you hear that, because you want to make your own decisions, you don't want Iman, uh, uh, someone to tell you and to command you what to do and to tell you what to do with your life and how to live your life. Well, if that's the case with you, then you are still not acknowledging Him as Lord. And you do not belong to Jesus. You are not sanctified, verse 10, and your sins are not forgiven. Are you willing to die in that state? Or would you rather repent of your sin and be forgiven? 
Number two, so that's number one, he's a better sacrifice. Number two, he's a better priest. And that's in verse 11 to 18. Let us read. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Teachers, my sister's a teacher and my brother-in-law's a teacher and my parents were teachers. And I have many family members who are teachers. My sister-in-law is a teacher. <laughs> and so on. But, but teachers stand for many hours in a day. And now and then they sit. At break time. In the staff room. Sometimes at their desk. But for a great part of the day they stand. People in the restaurant business. Well, they, they stand even more. Longer hours on their feet, and they sit even less. But priests in the Old Testament did not sit at all during work hours. Why not? Because their work was never done. The people always sinned. There was always new sin every day. So every day they had to bring sacrifices, stand on their feet. Sacrifices that couldn't remove sin. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus' sacrifice is different. So Jesus brought a single sacrifice and through the single sacrifice he really removed sin and then he sat down because his work is complete. Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down as co-regent. Sat down as king. Sat down as equal to the Father. Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, we learn that. He sat down and he will continue to sit down until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's Psalm 110 verse 1. That is an, uh, a familiar image in ancient warfare where you put your feet on the neck of your enemies or on the back of your enemies to say I've defeated you like you would do when shooting a lion and you pose for the photo and you put your foot on its body or on its neck saying I have conquered my enemy. And in the end, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow before him. 
of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All the nations will come and bow before him. All the nations will come and worship before him. Psalm 22, 20, verse 27, and Psalm 86, verse 9. And even Isaiah 45, 22 and 23 in the book of Revelation, you see people worshipping and the whole creation worshipping. Now some will bow willingly and some will bow because they are forced to bow the knee. So no religion, no philosophy, no government, no demon, no conspiracy of nations, no secret organization will stand when Jesus Christ returns. The Father will place all of these under His feet. He will subject them to His Son. And when Jesus comes again, the last enemy to be defeated, the last one to be brought under His feet is death. And that happens when Jesus raises us from the dead. So the, so the application here is not difficult to see. It's not hard to see. The application is very simple. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Are you obedient to His Word? Are you submitting to Him as Lord? Or are you living in rebellion against Him? Well, if you are, He's going to force you to your knees. He will break your knees. So you have to bow. You will bow before Jesus Christ. He will smash you as someone takes an iron scepter and smashes a clay pot. So be wise. Bow before Jesus Christ. Kiss his feet in humble adoration, in loyalty. Worship him. Hide in him. Take a refuge in Him by faith and He will bless you. That's Psalm 2 that I explained to you. Now maybe, maybe that just makes you angry. It makes the anger rise up in your heart that He gives you only these options. Either worship me or you perish. And you're angry. But it's right. It is right that He demands that of you. He created you. And he can demand of his creatures what he pleases. And he can tell you what he wants to tell you. And anyone who knows Jesus Christ will know and understand. Jesus never seeks to put his children down. He never seeks that will be that which will harm you and will hurt you. He always seeks what will be best for his children. Always. Working things together for their good. He's for them so he can be against them. God gave his own son as a sacrifice. And he will give all things to us graciously with Christ. It's only unbelievers who think, oh, he's a hard master. A hard master. I want to throw this yoke off me. I don't want this burden on me. It's only unbelievers who think, he's a hard master. I know you to be a hard master, sir. You're a hard master. You, you reap where you did not sow. That's how unbelievers see Jesus. If they'd known better, they would have realized 
Jesus, and uh, sorry, just to turn back on, on the previous sentence there, the reason why they think so is because Jesus is standing between me and my sin. But if they'd known better, they would have understood Jesus is standing between you and hell. That's why he's standing between you and your sin. He's standing between you and hell. You, you literally, almost literally, as uh, let's say probably in a figure of speech, but it's as if you have to walk over the body of Jesus and swim through his blood to get to hell. You're standing between you and hell. Why would you go to hell? After all his invitations, after all his warnings, if you still persevere on this road to hell, then Jesus will give you what you want. An eternity without Him. Without His love and grace and goodness and peace. So it's not shocking at all that hell then also is a place filled with sadness and tears and guilt and pain and demons and hatred. Even, let's say, let's say God did not create hell. Let's just say for a moment, even if God would not create hell, people would make this world a living hell if God just gives them over to what they want. Give them over to what they want. Give them their sin. Romans 1. And South Africa is a, is a very clear example of this in many other countries at this stage in the world. It's a living hell. And the fact that you have sunshine and rain and money and family and Congregational life and all these blessings. That is, that is pure grace. That is pure grace. So decide then. Decide who will you serve. Will you serve Jesus who loved sinners and died for them, gave his life for them? Or will you serve sin, sin and Satan and this world? You know, just like a man is, is jealous for his wife. It's my wife. It's not that other man's wife. Just as a man is jealous for his wife, in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ will not allow you to worship him and your sin. You must choose. Now, perhaps your sin is bothering you, and you wonder, can Jesus forgive me? Especially since you've tried to have a clean conscience. You've tried this in the past, and you've been unsuccessful. Let me tell you that no amount of religion or anything you can do can cleanse your conscience. Chapter 9, verse 9. Only Jesus can cleanse your conscience. Only Jesus. So his life, the single sacrifice of himself, is enough to forgive your sin, to set you before God, to make you stand before God with a perfect record and to help you live a holy life. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected, meaning his perfect righteousness is credited, credited to you. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So by his death also, he has provided all you need to become more and more holy and to live a holy life. So under the new covenant, under this new covenant, God has given you a new heart. 
He has written his law upon your heart. So he has given you a desire to obey. He has, he has placed his Holy Spirit inside you so you are able to obey. And you will obey. Verse 15 and 16. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he's also promised he will write off all your sin. He will obliterate your sin. He will remove your sin. He will no longer hold your sin against you. He will never again bring it up before you or before himself or before the angels or before anyone. Never again will he think of your sin. Remember your sin. Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So why do we sometimes return to sin that you've already confessed? Sin that you've repented of? Sin that God has already forgiven? Why do we return to our previous life, to the sins of our old life? And we think of them again. I'm not talking about... Uh, repeating those sins, doing them again. We shouldn't. I'm talking about why do we return and feel guilty about them again? Why do you daydream about those sins again? Why try and cleanse your conscience by getting a pastor to pray for you? And he must be a very important and a famous pastor. Why do that? We say the Catholics do that. They confess their sins to human priests. But don't Protestants do the same? We don't have a confessional booth. But sometimes you think, if only that pastor can pray for me. Why think that I need to make some sacrifices? And then my conscience will be cleansed. Why consider suicide? Why make plans to commit suicide so you can escape from this guilty conscience? Why? Why, if suicide will only make things worse? Chapter 9, 27. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Stop fumbling around for answers. Stop, stop seeking everywhere for answers. Jesus is enough. God has accepted the sacrifice of His Son in your place. You need no other sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 18. Where there's forgiveness of these, meaning sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. And besides, no other offering will work. Nothing you do will work. Verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is enough. The Holy Spirit testifies to this in the Old Testament. And He's, and he's established it in our hearts. He's testified and bore witness, borne witness to this in our hearts. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Meaning in the Old Testament, but also in our hearts. He bears witness to this. And to us. So God said it. I believe it. That settles it. 
Or to, to say it more biblically, it would be more biblical to say, God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. And yet, yet I believe it with all my heart. Jesus is enough. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, as the sacrifice for our sins. What more can we say? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.